Well, hey, long time no hey. see. No kidding, huh? It's been a whole, what is it, 24 hours now? Yeah, we just got back from vacation and uh, Shelly is making fun of me. She's like, oh my gosh, you're going through withdrawals already? You guys got to talk? I know, right? Though yesterday, I think our wives talked more than we talked. So that's got to count for something. Yeah, well, their whole passenger experience like allowed them to text back and forth quite a bit. Well, but as I was falling asleep last night, my phone kept dinging. And Kristen said, you know, Shelly and I are chatting on Messenger, so you may want to just mute your phone. Uh, so <laughs> maybe you guys were still driving at that point. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Shelly stayed up way late. It's actually really hot here in Oregon. Oddly enough, it is hotter in Oregon than it was for our trip in Arizona. So that's ridiculous. And so it was hard to fall asleep last night. So I think Shelley made use of the time by looking at future vacation houses to, for our next trip. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. See, it is a lovely 73 degrees here today. What? Uh, I know. It's insane. Somebody said that fall comes in waves here in Missouri. You get fall one and then summer blasts back in and then you get the real fall. And that is so true. We'll have a, a week or two of beautiful weather, and then we'll have another month of summer in late August, September somewhere. Odd. That is crazy. That's I don't remember weird. that from my time in Missouri. It has been true. I mean, we've only been back here for two years, but it has been true, both of them, that we're like, oh, we're in fall already. That's amazing. And then yeah. we're not. <laughs> Well, so you you rang, you called. Uh, what's on your mind? Well, we have officially finished our summer in the Psalms. Speaking of fall coming, we have finished summer in the Psalms, and I wanted to just have one final conversation where we sort of debrief about all the various things we thought and experienced. That is a lot of time reading the Psalms. And so I'm just excited to end, instead of on zooming in on one particular psalm, uh, to take a step back and think, okay, what is our experience takeaway from reading the psalms as a whole? Yeah, oh, man. I'm so excited to dive into this because I really wanted this Summer in the Psalms to be a formative experience. And what I'm realizing about formation is sometimes it takes active reflection on the ways in which you are being formed in order to really drive that formation home. And so I'm excited to dive in, find out what we experienced uh, just by talking about it and going, oh, yeah, I guess that is what I think. So yeah, I'll say for me, my overall, I'm just really pleased that we did this not only because the Psalms are wonderful and there's such a bedrock of the scriptures and prayer and all of these things, but I needed something like an official reading plan. As soon as I finished up seminary, we dove into this reading plan and I was able to just keep my momentum from seminary straight into this Summer in the Psalms series. And I was working with my spiritual director a couple of weeks ago to say, okay, we're going to we're gonna finish this up, and what am I going to do next, and all of those things. And I really just feel like it was a great way to keep that 
um, momentum, that consistency going. And that's not something I have historically succeeded in. I have been really flaky up and down with Bible reading and prayer and all of those things. So I'm thrilled that this provided a catalyst for me to be consistent in something. Yeah, absolutely. I have genuinely appreciated having a plan for me in the midst of a summer, in the midst of all the schedule changes that happen in a summer, just the light reminder all the time that I was coming to a conversation that I needed to talk about the Psalms a little bit, kept me going and kept some consistency. Uh, Mm. And I have been super grateful for that and gotten a ton out of it. So what is one of the things, your takeaways from this experience? Well, like I've said before, I really feel like this break between the two degree programs that I'm pursuing was something that God promised would be a a garden space, is how I've really described it. Kind of like uh, Psalm 23, just this place where you can rest beside still waters and just be with God, not have anything really pressing that you have to do, just this space to finally relax and unwind and celebrate being with God. And in a way, the Psalms helped me do that, but it's interesting to me that I consistently wanted the Psalms to do that, and they always fought me in it. Hmm. Yeah, so I always wanted the Psalms to be nothing but praise, adoration, happy notes, restful notes, all of those things. And it sometimes was those things, but often it was this cry of desperation or this, I'm being persecuted, God save me, evil people are after me. I depend on you. I cast my hopes on you because I'm going to die without it. And to be quite honest, that just wasn't where I was emotionally or theologically or spiritually Mm -hmm. or in so many other ways that I'm like, man, the content of this psalm is really wrecking my vibe right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm fascinated by how much my present situation dictated how I wanted to read the Psalms and how, like, to be quite frank, how irritated I was with the Psalms at times, because I'm like, yeah, this has nothing to do with what I'm thinking right now. Well, and this is so interesting, right? Like, we have an approach to reading the Bible that I think, and because I experienced this as well, there were numerous times where my emotional tone and the psalm that I was reading that day's emotional tone were not the same. Yeah. Sometimes in the direction that you're describing, sometimes in the opposite direction. I was like ready for a like smite my enemies psalm and got a like whoop-de-doo, yay is Jesus psalm. And <laughs> I, my thought on this as I've kind of reflected on the corpus of the psalms, we have expectations that are correct for many parts of the Bible, that the Bible has something to say to me today. I think in the Psalms, and and I'm putting this out as a hypothesis, as I got about halfway through the Psalms, three quarters of the way through the Psalms, and kept having this experience, one of the things I decided was, 
it's okay to bounce off of a psalm today as long as I remember it's there when I need it. Mm. If the psalms are there to give me language, I don't need to get into their emotional space. I just need to let them form my emotional space by giving me prayerful language to communicate where I'm actually at. Does that resonate at all? Yeah, I love that. I also really appreciated something you said while we were on vacation and we were discussing the Psalms. We were talking about the Psalms that reference persecution in particular. And we don't experience persecution in this country in any way like is being talked about in these Psalms. And you said, maybe this Psalm isn't for us to identify with. Maybe it's for us to have language to understand the persecuted church. And so I want to broaden that out and say, I think sometimes when we don't connect with a Psalm, there are other people in our lives, in the church, in the global church or in the world mm. that will identify with that prayer, that thought, that experience. And this helps us get in tune with how somebody else might be feeling. And that's really valuable too. Oh, that's a, I mean, I know you're referencing me, but that's a great, <laughs> boy, I love what I have to say. <laughs> but I'm just thinking what a, what I didn't think of in that moment when I was saying that, and I think you're stepping it up a little bit here, and so I like it, whether it's somebody I know or somebody halfway across the world, somebody in the church today is experiencing this, and we pray the psalm in solidarity with them. They mm. become a corporate experience that way. That's a really cool thought. Well, I stole it from you, so uh, thank you. I amaze even myself. <laughs> Man. Uh, well, if that thought was that good, give me another thought from the Psalms. What what else is you, have you taken away? You know, one of my major thematic takeaways, as somebody who has focused on leadership, has been a proactive person my whole life, I am trying to change the world. I am actively challenging people to move forward in their spiritual lives every day. It's amazing to me how much the interrelated themes of trusting and waiting pervade the Psalms. There is a very real sense that God is the one who is active, and I am the one who is responsive. I don't want to say passive, and I don't want to say reactive. Those words have connotations that I don't mean, but that I am invaded to be a responder rather than an actor to the one who is the one true active person in the story. Yeah, I almost get the impression of submission or acquiescence or getting on board, or I'm not sure what word to throw in there, but I got the sense from the Psalms, this is Yahweh's world. This is Yahweh's timing. This is Yahweh's plan. This is Yahweh's faithfulness to his own covenant. It was Yahweh's 
choice to choose this people. It's always been Yahweh's faithfulness which holds this covenant together. And we all just submit to that, get on board with that, walk and step with that, because that's all we've got. That's all we've ever had. That's the sense that I got. It's just, I wrote down in my notes here, just this is Yahweh's world, period. Mm. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It is. It's his world. And we are just, we are renters and stewards in his world. And so, like, for example, when in the book of Acts, Jesus says to the disciples, and I'm going to get the language wrong, but essentially, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to show up. Mm, Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Anybody steeped in the book of Psalms would have been like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. It wouldn't have been a confusing directive Whereas when we are starting a new, you know, I'm starting a new phase of life, literally as we speak. It is so interesting to note that when we are starting, we start with planning, we start with preparing, we start with doing. You know, you texted me yesterday and said, hey, this may be a time where you need to experience more Sabbath with God as a way of starting. And you may need to start with a a season of Sabbath or a sabbatical and see your start that way into this next season. Yeah. And I think that that is a very natural outgrowth of the Psalms mentality of just wait, just wait confident that God is going to do something and you can't miss it because he's God. (laughs) Yeah. I'm fascinated with that concept of waiting with the Psalms because there is the sense of, I wait on you, I wait on you, I wait on you. But then there's also Psalms that are like, how long, O Lord? How long are we going to wait? How long before you step up and do the thing that you promised you were going to do? How Mm. long? And so I get the sense from the Psalms that this is a patient, impatient sort of waiting. It, it, it takes a long time. I don't know what to do with that. Well, I, it's such an interesting invitation to be – that's the honest human condition, right? We know we need to wait and we stink at it. <laughs> and yeah. so we are welcomed by the Psalms to wait impatiently. But that is different from taking things into our own hands. Yeah. Let me spend my impatience in prayer rather than in knee-jerk reactions. Well, and I think the ancients were probably much better at waiting than we are. You know, one of the things that we did on our vacation was go to a Native American heritage dinner and they talked about, well, one, they opened with a Navajo flute playing solo that was just amazing and deeply reflective. And it felt like the wind and felt like being outside at sunset. And it was amazing. But then they showed some different dances and they talked about how kind of Western audiences have not wanted the long, slow dances that they had traditionally done. And so some of their traditional dances actually got sped up 
as a result of interacting with Western culture. All of that, to me, says that the ancients were probably better at waiting and doing things slowly than we are. And if they found waiting to be lengthy and they started to get impatient, we are going to find the waiting to be interminable. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about the moment when Abraham welcomes the three visitors into his tent and offers to make them dinner from the living sheep over in the field. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Just sit right here. I'll be right back. I'll make you dinner. I just got to go, you know, slaughter the sheep, cut the sheep up, cook the sheep. It'll be, you know, I mean, that's ours. Yeah. Which we make light of. I don't know about you, but that's a joke in our family. Like if we're at a restaurant and dinner is taking a while to get served, literally this happened last night when we went out to dinner on our drive home. Dinner was taking a while and we joked, oh, well, it's taking so long because they've got to go butcher the cow before they can make our burger. Because it took 20 minutes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I I think you're exactly right. We need to be practicing waiting and trusting far more often because we are not certainly going to be better at it than the sheep killers. But what about you? What's another thought that you walked away with? Yeah, I know we talked about this a bit on our vacation, but man, the us versus them mentality in the Psalms was so startling. It was one of the things that I found to be, you know, messing with my mojo. I I just, let me just read Psalm 149, the final few verses of Psalm 149, because I think it really just captures this in a way that I can't quite put into words. So the first half of the Psalm is all exactly what I wanted. Yay, praise the Lord. God is great. He delights uh, his people, all of these things. It's it's wonderful. And then verse 6 appears to continue on down that same track, but then says, May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their king with fetters and their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of his faithful people. Praise Yahweh. Yeah, I can hear a modern therapist trying to lead the author away from black and white thinking. (laughs) Right. And I don't know what to do with it. It's so us versus them. It's so God's going to bless God's people and God is going to carry out vengeance on the nations. And we, his faithful people, are going to be part of God's vengeance making. And that is glorious. What? That's so far removed from our modern sensibilities that I I just can't, I don't have a category for it. Well, and that's where I think it invites an interesting conversation with exactly that. The Bible invites us to have a conversation about our modern sensibilities and to wrestle with to what degree are our sensibilities simply a product of our culture and age rather than our wisdom and godliness? 
And I don't pretend to know the answer in this situation, but I think it's interesting that the Bible wants to have that conversation because I I suspect we are not particularly interested in surrendering our private sins, but I think we are more interested in surrendering our private sins than our corporate sensibilities. What do you mean by that? Our cultural sensibilities, things like us versus them thinking is reductionistic. We need to move away from polarizing conversation. I think we embrace those things wholeheartedly, and the Bible invites us in moments like this to recognize here was a guy leading worship you know, in the book of Psalms, people presumably gathered at temple to sing this song, and the worship is led in a very different way, and it was honoring enough to God that God presumably inspired it and then canonized it. We either need to wrestle with our sensibilities or call the Bible wrong in some moments, and I don't want to go with the Bible's wrong. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that helps me hold this together a little bit is something we talked about on vacation, which was the difference in our modern mind. We're very individual focused in our modern thinking, whereas ancient Israel was very people group focused. So there is a sense in which there's going to be vengeance against the wicked nations, but individuals from those nations, you know, for instance, Rahab, right, are welcome to follow Yahweh and be a God-fearer at any time. And so there is both this sense that God is going to curse the wicked, yet save any who will want who want to come. And we only tend to think in terms of individuals when we approach this topic, and I don't know that that's always correct. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. God is at war with an enemy power, but any individual person can defect from that enemy power to God's team or side or whatever. It really comes down to, on the individual level, it comes down to allegiance. And I have to admit, there is a part of me that is actually drawn to this. Working at 911, I see and hear the wickedness of people and what it does to victims. And I, there's a part of me that just screams for justice and vengeance. And that person that harmed, I mean, for me, it's children. That just gets me, it gets me more than any other type of call when a, a child is the victim that person that messed with that child's life and victimized them so horrifically, they deserve punishment. And I mm -hmm. just, I get very worked up and I, my soul cries for justice and vengeance. And if we put the quote unquote nations in that light, that level of wickedness, by all means, wipe them off the face of the earth. Like I just, I, I understand still that might make some people feel uncomfortable, but man, when you've talked to that victim, uh, there's not a lot of compassion left for the perpetrator. No, absolutely. I, I think, 
this all reminds me of one of the major themes of C.S. Lewis's book, Perilandra. Uh, I don't know how much you remembered the story. Uh, pretty well. Okay. So, in short, there's three main characters. A woman who is being tempted by someone we can, for all intents and purposes, call a possessed man. He's possessed by a demonic spirit and is trying to corrupt this woman. And the hero is trying to stop this corruption from happening. And he argues and argues and argues and argues for like chapters of the book. And eventually, he comes to terms with the fact that arguing is not going to work. And maybe he needs to take the need to fight the evil powers literally. And he actually gets in a fight with the possessed guy and attempts to kill him. And what the main character is wrestling with is very explicitly his modern sensibility that we have risen above what he initially wants to call sort of animalistic ways of dealing with things. And he comes to terms with the fact that sometimes that's what needs to happen. That's a really hard thing to discern and understand. Because on the one hand, I think about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, you know, joined a plot to assassinate Hitler. And you kind of sympathize with that and you kind of go, okay, I get it. And then on the other hand, you have what, you know, in, in my words, I'd call wackos who want to bomb like abortion facilities. And you're like, okay, that's not the way to handle that, people. So what, where's the line there? I, I just, this feels like we're flirting with very dangerous thoughts. I agree. And I think we want to take this us versus them stuff in the context of the previous thought, right? The fact that this is Yahweh's world. Mm. Yahweh is the primary actor. And often, knee-jerk actions to take things into my own hands make a mess. I think the two thoughts balance each other out somehow. Yes. And especially when you think of the, some of those, how long, oh Lord, kinds of things, the question is specifically, how long before you rise up and slay the wicked? How long are the wicked going to get away with their wickedness? You need to act here. This is your world, after all. You said you weren't going to tolerate this nonsense, and here it is. So do something about it. Which is a far different thing than, if you're not going to do something, then I will. Yeah. Or over-spiritualizing, right? Oh, I get it. You want me to do something. That's <laughs> how you're going to work. Okay. Right? Yes. And then... And then you have a blank check to do whatever you want. Right. Because God told me. Yeah. I really like your thought. This this is Yahweh's world. We have to just wait on him. And back to your idea I, of trust. I think that's your thought. Oh, yeah. This, I like I, me. I like my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> that's our takeaway from the Psalms, everybody. <laughs> we like our thoughts. As long as that's what you got out of it, you understood what God was trying to do with the book of Psalms. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, such a far cry from what we should have said. 
But oh, so true. Well, any last thoughts from you about the Psalms as you wrap up this experience? You know, I have lots of other thoughts, but one thing I'll say is that my appreciation for the Psalms snowballed the more time I put into them. I enjoyed the latter Psalms more than the first ones, not because of their content, but because I was getting into this sort of elusive headspace of the Psalms a little bit better. Mm. The more I reflected on them, you mentioned this before, the more I appreciated a psalm. Every psalm seemed to start off simple until I thought about it more, until I was really getting into that headspace. But every psalm had riches available. It just required reflection. Some of that reflection was through conversation with you. Some of that reflection was through uh, writing. But I just needed to reflect in order to get into that headspace. And then once I was in that headspace of the Psalms, there was always an incredible wealth there for me. Yeah. I think you mentioned this thought earlier in the Psalms series that as much time as you had spent in the Psalms, you still had not reached the level of reflection and internalization of its content like the biblical authors and the ways that they were able mm-hmm. to use the Psalms so naturally and freely. And I found myself going, okay, this was a good start, but I need to spend more and more and more time with the Psalms. It needs to be a consistent formation step for me because there is a worldview that I need to adopt as my own. And right now I'm just struggling to participate in somebody else's worldview. Yeah, I can 100% see why the monastic traditions go through the Psalms every month. I don't know that I could do what I needed to do with them that quickly, but I get it. Absolutely. You know, you said, uh, I don't know if this is the phrase you used, but I think you said something like you were borrowing the worldview. Mm -hmm. And that's it exactly. I felt like I was borrowing the worldview and desperately need more time with it to dig deeper and get it to go, get it deeper into my heart to let it keep simmering a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I want to invite the audience. Uh, what was your reflection on this, on your journey through the Psalms? We would love to know. Uh, join us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Threads. Just search for On the Phone with Josh and let us know what was your experience like as you spent this entire summer in the Psalms. And if you found this episode or any other episode of ours uh, useful or you think somebody else would find it useful, please share. Uh, we love to expand the conversation with you and with uh, many, many others. So thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for liking and commenting on social media. Yeah, absolutely. We can't wait to hear what it is that you have to say. And we're excited to keep the conversation going. But Josh, I want to turn it over to you for a second here. Now, those were some of our Psalms thoughts, but I want to take a minute and hear what else you've been thinking about. Yeah, so it's been great. We recently did a sermon series at our church on Sabbath, and the entire series was one of invitation and delight rather than legalism and ought. And so 
we really resonated with the entire sermon series. It was so well done, and it got us talking as a family, how can we Sabbath together? And some of the words that really stood out to me from that sermon series were delight, rest, together. Sabbath is meant to be a communal experience. It's meant to be this entire moment of pause and rest and unplug and connect with God, with others, with family. And so I really resonated with that and enjoyed it, as did my family. And so we spent part of our drive to Arizona and part of our drive back talking about Sabbath and how we can do this together as a family. And I expect the next school year to be an experiment in Sabbath. One of the ways that we think we're going to to practice is we've generated a list of ideas that we just need to codify and write down, a list of ways that we would delight in the Sabbath. And that could be anything from sitting around the fire to going to the lake to having friends over for a delicious meal, to making a particular dessert, or taking a nap, or you know, a variety of different activities. And we will just put them on a list. And one of the things that we will do each Sabbath is decide how we're going to spend the next Sabbath. And mm. not not in any sort of like scheduled or really pressured sort of way, but like really asking ourselves, how might we delight in the Sabbath next week? And that way we have a plan. And so if it requires any special grocery shopping, or if it requires packing a lunch so that we're ready to go somewhere after church or whatever it is, we have that all done so that by the time Sabbath comes, we are ready to delight in it. And we know what the plan is, and we're just going to enjoy it together. So... That's what I'm thinking about, and I can't wait to experiment with this. I think it's going to be a great way to do Sabbath. That's awesome. I am looking forward to hearing updates on that, because that is both an approach and a discipline that I think are needing more attention in our world today. And I am looking forward to seeing both of them in your practice. Yeah, I'm excited to do this as a family. Sometimes we talk about spiritual formation or we talk about spiritual disciplines, and it's a very individual us and God kind of thing. But this is a corporate discipline, and and there's a lot of joy and excitement in that. That's awesome. Yeah. So what about you? What are you thinking about? Well, uh, we spent a large percentage of our drive to and from Arizona listening to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. We, we're seven episodes in, uh, which is a little over halfway through the regular episodes, not all the bonus episodes that come through. And I have to say, first of all, I am deeply impressed with Christianity Today's interest in this kind of long-form journalism. Mm-hmm. They are very intentionally trying to autopsy Mars Hill in order to learn what is it telling us about, as their organization name describes, Christianity today. And 
I think that it's been beautifully balanced, very honest, intentionally trying to keep strengths and weaknesses in focus. It's been gracious and gentle, but honest and hard-hitting all at the same time. And seven hours in, we are just getting to the analysis of what went wrong. The, The first six hours are setting up what Mars Hill really is all about. And I am astounded at how many different things I hear described about Mars Hill that are true of my adult evangelical church experience. Mm. Not to say that my adult evangelical church experience has been bad or destructive entirely, but I can tell that I was, I've been swimming in the same pond that Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill were swimming in. Mm. Which is exactly why Christianity Today felt the need to give the rise and fall of Mars Hill this much attention. It's not an expose. It is an examination of what is deeply symbolic of the culture we are in as evangelical Christians. Yeah. I have hundreds of thoughts about it, and I guess I'm just expressing a deep appreciation for the work that Christianity Today did in producing this with such excellence, and I hope to be able to have a real conversation about it at some point. Yeah, I hope so too. I don't know quite how to have that conversation because I don't want to drag real people in real situations over the coals live on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I also don't want to rehash everything that they did on that very excellent podcast. I almost want to just say, how do we live differently? How do we live into a better, more faithful posture as a church and as a church leadership culture. I just think that that's the more helpful conversation that isn't already covered by you know, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Christianity Today did what they did great. Now I want to go to the next step, which is how do we do it different than that? Yeah, absolutely. The only, and I don't mean it as a criticism per se, my only wish about what CT did about this is I cannot find any attempt by them to translate this into a print medium. Mm. And I really wish for my own reflection, as I've said numerous times, I think on the podcast before, like my best approach to reading is to listen to something and then go back and highlight. And I just wish that I could find, and maybe they have it, And if any of our listeners are aware of any of, I know that the transcripts of each episode are available, but some print version of this that they did that I could buy and mark up, I think the material deserves that level of reflection. And uh, I wish that they had provided something like that and they didn't. But I agree. I think you're absolutely right. The conversation would be, what are the takeaway principles that we can live differently with? Yeah. And I would love to have that conversation. Well, I also want to key in on your comment about 
you know, print media and the need to like go through it and then go back through it and highlight. And this is a great segue into announcing to our audience something we're going to be doing starting on October 10th. On October 10th, we are going to go chapter by chapter through the book Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volf. You and I have both worked our way through this book, and it is incredibly challenging. He's really asking the question, why, theologically, spiritually, intellectually, why should a Christian embrace their enemies? And this is such a valuable question in our society right now, and he dives into so many different layers of this that it was so hard to get the first time. So you and I have committed offline, and now we're committing to our audience, we're going to go back through this book. And we're going to try to make sure that we understand by going through our highlights and really diving into each chapter, what is he trying to say? But then beyond that, we're going to ask ourselves the question, in light of what he has to say in this chapter, how can we be formed this direction? Because I think in our modern society, especially as we ramp up toward a presidential election, and as we talk about the different indictments that are happening and the polarization in our country, I mean, that alone should cause us to stand up and say, wait a minute, we as Christians need to be able to think and act differently in the world and loving our enemies, even embracing our enemies, politically or otherwise, matters. And so we want to try to grow in that direction. And so we hope you as an audience will join us. If you are interested in reading along, our first chapter book conversation on Exclusion and Embrace is going to happen on October 10th. It's going to be great. I can't wait. It is such an amazing book. And you're right. This is a really timely moment for us to discuss it. Yeah, 100%. All right. Time for something a little less consequential. The Witch Josh question. (laughs) Yes. And today's Witch Josh question is, which Josh finished the book of Psalms first? We figured we might as well keep it on brand or on topic. Uh, so, which Josh finished the book of Psalms first? And the answer is... Me, I guess. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> funny to talk about this because when we arrived on vacation, we were supposed to have like two or three chapters left to read. And you and I were both behind by like seven to ten chapters somewhere in there. And so yep. we sp- we spent our entire vacation just slowly like working our way through the remaining chapters of the Psalms. And I think, you know, we both were getting up early and re- reading the Psalms. And I finished Psalm 150 about, I don't know, 10 minutes before you did or something. So <laughs> yep. I don't know. This is kind of a, mm, I think we tied, but, you know, either way, it was kind of funny to finish right about the same time. Yeah, that's exactly right. We were close, but even in a close race, somebody wins. And uh, in this situation, that was you. All right. I am the Psalms winner, whatever that's worth. Congratulations. Well, winner of the Psalms, are you too high and mighty to talk to me again next week? Or uh, Actually, I am. Podcast over. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. This has been your final episode of On the Phone with Josh. What? Goodbye.
again. <laughs>